I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. One of the common criticisms of crypto and blockchain has been that they are technologies looking for a problem to solve. But I think it's safe to say that our guest today, Robbie Greenfield, would have some strong words for such a broad brush. Robbie is the CEO and co-founder of Umoja Labs, a benefit corporation that serves the global south by providing blockchain-enabled last-mile payment infrastructure tools that facilitate global financial inclusion. Specifically, Umoja is one of the very few crypto on-off-ramp providers that support emerging markets and their payment methods while partnering with and serving governmental agencies and major NGOs such as Care International, Save the Children, and Oxfam. So in this episode, I'm handing the baton over to one of the show's new co-hosts, Julian Ha, who will be asking Robbie about what blockchain actually can do for emerging markets infrastructure. And he'll be picking Robbie's brain on a number of issues as well, including what crypto winter looks like in Africa and what market turbulence says about the health of not only blockchain, but Web3 and beyond. Robbie, welcome to being a guest on Fintech Beat. It's great to have you. I appreciate you having me on. As you know, I'm in the business of people as a recruiter. And I find your experience really interesting because it's unique and diverse. You've worked with Ethereum folks and Joe Lubin. You've worked on the blockchain for Social Impact Coalition. Robbie, in your own words, can you tell us about your origin story and about Umoja? Absolutely. Yeah, my, my journey really begins, I would say, at the University of Michigan. And the reason I say that is because that's when uh, my, my parents made clear to me that I was becoming an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> you had no choice. Huh? <laughs> There's no, no choice in that matter. Um, and so I was lucky enough to have a friend, Kennard, who had introduced me to Bitcoin at the time, uh, which I think was around like 40 to $30 um, and had started Bitcoin kind of scripting um, just because building around Bitcoin was a lot more difficult. And, and so it was kind of like a side hobby um, just because the community was incredibly small. I mean, you're talking about, you know, if you wanted to buy some going to like a steak and shake in the middle of the night and, and, and exchanging cash with some stranger with a computer, right? That, that's effectively <laughs> what the market looked like. And it wasn't until, I believe this happened in 2012 with the murder of Trayvon Martin, interestingly enough, um, because that's when my kind of obsession around blockchain technology really took form around a purpose, you know, rather than just a hobby. And that purpose being that in what ways can I avail myself useful to you know, black and brown communities more generally, given that I might not have the speaking abilities of an MLK or a Malcolm X or maybe the charisma of, you know, other leaders, you know, within those communities. Um, and so as an engineer, I thought it natural to uh, start looking into how we could apply blockchain technology to, you know, social impact issues. Uh, but of course, you know, full-time opportunities still didn't make themselves available until much later in the industry. And so did sense it at Goldman Sachs and at uh, Cisco Systems, where I participated in some of their internal blockchain 
research and initiatives, um, and then found myself um, at Consensus pretty early on, uh, really creating this community around social impact use cases and the technology uh, from from the ground up. With of course, um, you know, many others at Consensus, and that became what is Consensus Social Impact, and really gave enough in, in education to the social sector to UN agencies as to you know these are the things you could do and then also prime them uh, for okay now let's try and and from that kind of sprang um, you know moja um, and so through all those experiences super grateful to meet meet the right people in the right places and just have the motivations necessary to kind of follow that path that's awesome so look from what i understand and as i mentioned earlier you know one of these most common criticisms around crypto blockchain is that, you know, there's solutions looking for a problem, right? And when I came across what you've built, I thought, you know, here's really a compelling use case, right? It seems to lower costs associated with international payments and remittances. It also provides that essential assistance of on and off ramps to crypto. And I know you feel pretty passionate about this and you've talked about the irony of how DeFi is used based on how it is framed, mainly that it's not used for pragmatic purposes in most scenarios. So what's different and pragmatic about Umoja? And maybe you can yeah. answer that by you know talking about the mission and the problem that you're, you're trying to solve here. Yeah, absolutely. Our, our mission is to radically change upward social mobility for millions of people at a time who are, are typically uh, a part of that, you know, 2 billion people who are unbanked or underbanked number that you, you constantly see, you know, tossed around. And as, as gimmicky as it may sound, I, I really do think that there's a pathway forward to realize this within a very short period of time. Um, because the good thing is, is that people have increasing access to technologies, but unfortunately, there are not enough solutions built for those technologies for them to interface with financial services or other things that they may you know, want to be able to access, um, particularly for feature phones or what are all the otherwise called as dumb phones or bricks. And so the main you know, difference you know, for Moja is, is that we're focused on just traditional financial use cases uh, while also taking advantage of the cost that uh, blockchain technology brings in contrast to what you know, people might experience using mobile money or traditional financial uh, payment methods. Cost being obviously a lot less, the transparency being a lot higher. Just those two things alone and the way to effectively create programmable money. Um, so, you know, create escrows in the context of a loan or in the context of two individuals transacting actually does a, quite a lot. Um, it's not the sexiest thing to talk about because in the West, we already have these things. We have multiple versions of these things via the applications that we have. But in, in, in more rural regions, you know, smallholder farmers, for example, that only have, you know, a feature phone, don't have any access to credit, uh, can't use mobile money because it's too expensive. There are a lot of incentives to make this transition to something that costs less, that's more efficient, that's more transparent, that could be life-changing, that could literally increase their income. And so those are the things that we tend to focus on. And those things represent themselves in a lot of different ways. One use case that we quite frequent is 100% transparent humanitarian aid, uh, which we facilitate with CARE, Oxfam, and uh, many others. The second is, is obviously going into providing financing to smallholder farmers and you know, reducing the cost of mobile money uh, remittances. Um, so that's another use case. And then thirdly, what we're starting to see is, is as a lot of these emerging markets 
begin to create their own startups and attend to their own, you know, problems that they have. And obviously they have the cultural knowledge to attend to them best. You know, they don't have many payment rails that allow them to create those social finance applications because either their countries aren't supported by existing international payment rails or the, the cost to get started is just far too high in contrast to what the, their local VC community might be able to provide them. And so I think most importantly, you know, this use case is, is local fintechs using our infrastructure to build for their own communities. And we see this materialize in a lot of different types of applications, e-commerce, delivery, health services. And so it's really interesting to see, you know, not only Umoja as a provider of products for certain use cases, but also a provider of infrastructure more broadly so that we can see all the different types of use cases that we haven't yet. Now, that's really interesting, Robbie. And, and maybe just to drill a little bit deeper, because I'm just curious, what are the sort of the, the, the savings here, right? I mean, what percentage of remittances and these transactions are currently, if these folks are even able to do it to begin with, are they paying f- for that for that friction, right? For that for that transaction to go through? And, and how is Emoja sort of disrupting that and, and making this a far less costly exercise? Yeah, absolutely. And we can talk about this in two different contexts. One from like a consumer payments context, like so how much pe- are people paying now to send money in, 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 in a variety of different ways? And then the second being how much as far as on-ramping into the blockchain ecosystem or into the crypto economy, how much does that cost, right? Um, because a lot of people who are in rural environments likely won't be using the second, um, but a lot of urban kind of middle-class uh, consumers that are you know, growing in, in numbers in a lot of these uh, emerging markets will likely want to use the second. And so in the first, um, we can simply use M-Pesa as, as an example. So you know, the average transaction cost for M-Pesa is about 45 cents. Um, the average account amount is around uh, 10 USD. In some areas, it's, it's even less. And so uh, that proportion, the transaction cost of 45 cents, you know, in contrast to the average account amount, is quite a bit. And in addition to that, there are government levies on top of uh, mobile money transactions. So in Tanzania, for example, you're paying both what M-Pesa is charging you and what the government is charging you. And it's effectively rendered mobile money useless in terms of regular usage in that particular country when it ironically, you know, borders Kenya and where M-Pesa is effectively synonymous with um, moving money completely. Um, and so in that, you know, particular example, if you were to transact on a blockchain like Celo or Avalanche, you know, some of these higher transaction throughput, lower cost blockchains, you're talking about a, a cost savings of over a thousand times. Um, on Celo, I know transaction fees range from about a hundredth of a cent to a thousandth of a cent. Um, obviously crypto markets are down, so it's, it's even cheaper, <laughs> better or worse. Um, and then on other chains, it, it can be, a, you know, a little bit more, um, you know, even on Polygon, maybe 25 cents, but that's still almost a, a 50% reduction. And so that enables people to want to use mobile money more in cases in which they're too cost sensitive to be able to use it at all, which makes a huge difference in terms of the receipt of remittances and the access of other financial services that just require transfers more generally. The second, in terms of on and off ramps to crypto, um, um, so, uh, you know, obviously, there are a lot of things that are happening within the crypto world. There's there's earn to engage, 
you know, our engage to earn games. There's um, a lot of different protocols that provide lending savings in some um, sort of way, um, or just people who are speculatively investing. And I think it's important, you know, for an individual to have access, responsible access to all of these things, um, no matter where they're from. But right now, uh, a lot of on ramps charge upwards of eight to 10% of the value transacted. So incredibly expensive, very much focused on those with expendable income. And they don't um, provide country coverage in a lot of the countries in which you're starting to see these growing crypto communities, particularly Nigeria, which actually has more usage, you know, more Bitcoin transactions, I believe, than the state of California or much of the United States, if I'm not mistaken. And in these, you know, types of transactions, blockchain-based transactions across the continent of Africa have increased exponentially um, year over year, showing that, you know, the, the tech, this, there's a new tech generation coming that's building on Web3 from these markets. But obviously with these costs, with a lack of country coverage, um, you're not able to acquire you know, a lot of new customers into dApps that have better user experiences that allow somebody to, you know, onboard using M-Pesa or Airtel or whichever, rather than um, having a Visa card, you know, supported by an American bank. So that's the second, you know, use case um, that I think is really primed for disruption just in terms of getting people in. I mean, of course, beyond that, you know, there's pro programmable money elements that allow for uh, less riskier, you know, loan disbursement to consumers who otherwise wouldn't have any access to credit at all. Um, but that's that's a that's when we started getting into, you know, what protocols, what pragmatic protocols can you build in these um, rural contexts um, that replicate. Uh, both, you know, cultural systems in terms of maintaining trust with people in real life, but then also, um, you know, traditional financial systems in terms of mitigating risk um, while also providing people with financial opportunities. No, that's great. I mean, I, I'm hearing real meaningful savings, creating real access for, for folks and, and larger institutions that up until now would be challenging for folks to access. So my understanding is Emojis developed the world's kind of first crypto-based humanitarian aid programs, right? And you've had some of the largest NGOs on the planet, you know, sign up. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about these NGOs, these financial service providers, why they've chosen to partner with Emoja and what they see in the in the potential here? Yeah, absolutely. So on the NGO side, we've worked with um, Care International, Oxfam International, World Vision, uh, and Save the Children. Um, also, um, you know, amazing organizations that are a little, sm a little bit smaller, uh, Hope for Haiti, um, Polish Humanitarian Action as well. And all of those NGOs, and this is true for um, UN agencies that we sometimes engage with, and even now central banks in a lot of these emerging markets, is how can you facilitate uh, social protection programs. So any type of program where you're providing money to some, for somebody um, because they're in a particular bind, whether that be a natural disaster or that just be you know food insecurity or whichever the case may be. So COVID stimulus is a form of social protection, for example, and EBT is as well uh, when we think about the American context to what this is. All of them want a way to be able to um, distribute money with 100% transparency, just given the context in which that money is being disbursed, right? It's typically donated from either a government agency or a, a large government affiliated agency like USAID, for example. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of you know, accountability as to, is this money going to the people that need it most? One, um, because we've seen uh, fraud you know, in, in social protection programs where the money doesn't even get to the people who 
uh, need it most. And this is actually uh, one of the underlying issues with um, commercial donor trust in NGOs and why you see varying rates of um, donation is because pe people just don't trust that the NGOs are actually going to spend the money correctly. And then the second thing is, is, you know, how is the money being used by those individuals? And, and there's usually, you know, unfortunately racist tropes or, you know, somewhat uh, classist tropes around how people from lower socioeconomic status communities will use money. Will they use it responsibly? Will they use it on the things that they need? Um, when oftentimes the case is that they actually are incredibly um, utilitarian when, when, when using beneficiary funds and then that they try to be as efficient as possible in terms of you know, mapping you know, the funds that they get to the needs that they have. And so it was really providing a solution that allowed for both of those things to coexist, um, being able to disperse with 100% transparency, but then also being able to see in the context of a humanitarian aid program, how and what is that money um, spent on, you know, from those uh, individuals. And then I would say a third thing that's really interested in them is, is that you can now have immediate response. You're talking about uh, a disaster aid response in less than a minute to people that you've already provided uh, wallets to. And so that's incredibly useful for future events. But then you can also allow those individuals to use those tools for other use cases outside of just receiving aid. And so this is where an introduction to, you know, uh, digital savings, to digital lending uh, starts to come into play. And that's something that we're, we're building on for the following months. Let's pivot a little bit to the crypto winter that seems to be kind of descending upon us. And some might say this is not necessarily a bad thing, right, in terms of, you know, some things that shouldn't be launched won't get launched. This also takes out some of the froth that will hopefully flush out some of the bad actors. But I've got a couple of questions for you, Ravi. First of all, what's the impact of what's happening with the price of coins, with sort of the a little bit of that, that winter, you know, coming on the global south? How's that being talked about, if at all, in those markets? We just don't hear that much, or I don't hear that much about sort of what, what the feeling is, the sentiment is coming from those markets. Can you share a little bit of what you're picking up? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, and yes, I mean, crypto winters are unfortunately extremely cyclical. And I think the more people, uh, the more speculators that, you know, join the market, the worse they become. Uh, I think in the context of, you know, emerging markets, you know, thankfully, I don't think individuals have been too affected just because, you know, the average, you know, investment that, you know, somebody's going to have in, in Nigeria or Eastern Africa is going to be a lot less than, you know, the average investment of an individual uh, from the United States or from, from Europe, at least right now. Um, you're talking about thousands to tens of thousands of dollars in a Western context, and you're talking about at most hundreds, you know, to low thousands of dollars in an emerging market context when you look at averages. I think more specifically to applications that use these cryptocurrencies and how it's affected users. I know that some people have been um, greatly affected, especially from the collapse of UST, uh, so Terra, which was a stablecoin obviously associated with the uh, Luna network. And uh, it, you know, it's, it's effectively evaporated you know, people's accounts for applications that have you know, used that particular stablecoin. And, and it brings up really two incredibly important points. One is, is that I think there are more Ponzi scheme economics in you know, today's protocols than there should be. And that's due to an excess of minting you know, these, these governance tokens that control these systems. 
But unfortunately, the governance tokens have very, very low voter turnout. You're talking about less than 2% in most cases and much more utility you know, to speculators trying to flip. Um, and the issue that that causes is that uh, you, you, you flood the market with you know, effectively voting rights that people are only in spec, you know, speculatively investing. And you know, when some of these protocols become less prominent or they have some type of technological exploit, they effectively become defunct. Um, and so it's very difficult for a retail consumer to be able to differentiate you know, what actual good projects are from bad projects or the ones that have done due diligence on crypto economics versus the ones that have. And I think that overall, when you have a continuing inflating crypto economic market with all of these tokens, some defunct, some not, it just saturates what actually can have value or not. And thus, you know, collapses and price are inevitable, at least for the vast majority of cryptocurrencies that don't have that level of utility. I think that in this, we'll likely see this in the executive order, you know, research proposals that were asked for earlier this year, toward the end of this year and, and in the beginning of next year, you, we're going to see, you know, probably greater scrutiny in terms of the types of stable coins that can be admitted, if at all, there might be a registration process associated with that. And I'd imagine the same will be true for the minting of utility tokens and the development of protocols, because right now we're having a, an, a, a challenge of regulating how value is created and sold and then resold. Um, and that you know puts uh, people with typically the less the least amount of expendable income at the most risk. And I think, you know, outside of that, as far as Emoja is concerned, is, is that we have to, you know, continue educating our partners as to which stable coins to use within their humanitarian programs on the NGO side or, you know, uh, within their applications on the fintech side in terms of on and off ramps. So hopefully Emoja, you know, is almost, well, maybe becomes a bit of a good housekeeping seal of approval, right? The ones that have, you know, sort of passed your muster and and passed your due diligence or in quote unquote, endorsed uh, by Umoja's usage or facilitating, you know, usage provides a little bit of comfort to the NGOs and and end users and whatnot. Is is that is that part of what what's happening right now and maybe part of the value that Emoja can can bring? Uh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I really do hope it is something um, you know, that we provide, you know, to our customers and, and, and the value that they see from it. Um, we've already, even a few years ago, we had created a risk matrix uh, for the analysis of stable coins. So how can you really assess the legitimacy and the safety of using certain stable coins with vulnerable populations? Um, and so we're going to republish that out, um, you know, really for anyone to use, not just, not just obviously the NGOs, but for anyone who's considering using cryptocurrencies within their applications more broadly. But, you know, to your point, I think it's going to become incredibly, incredibly and increasingly important for people to understand the difference between how these assets are collateralized to be immune to the crypto winters that, you know, unfortunately, I think will, will continue particularly maybe even worsen depending on, um, you know, the sentiments put out by these executive order proposals. And you know, maybe last question on this area is, have you seen any or, or received any feedback from some of your clients like Oxfam and Care and Save the Children? Have they become a little bit more shy around using crypto uh, at payment solutions or are they, do they understand that this is, you know, part of a cycle and it, it's still fundamentally very, very, robust technology that can help money get to where the end user needs to receive it. Yeah. I mean, I think that they're definitely becoming, I mean, definitely anxious, right. Yeah. Um, you know, especially because as you know, 
every crypto winner, two things will happen. You know, prices will go down and unfortunately layoffs will occur. Um, and so it, it, it just doesn't paint the, an entire market as one that's, you know, great to be associated mm. with, you know, or in terms of, you know, a, a customer using a solution from that market. Um, and so their anxiety has definitely increased there. I think the good thing is, is that they're further down their educational path as to understanding the difference between what's being used within their programs or on the fintech side, what's being used in their applications in contrast to what is not going well in the market. You know, so the, you know, even just the differentiation of a stable coin versus just a general cryptocurrency that might be a lot more volatile is something that it wasn't a question that they needed to answer before. And so now that they have that context, I think that brings them some level of comfort. You know, beyond that, it, it, you know, to the earlier point, it's just guidance as to which stable coins, you know, should they then use if some are even open to, you know, economic exploits. And so there has been uh, some favoritism toward USDC or just fiat collateralized uh, stable coins because it makes sense, right? One dollar in the bank, you know, one token in the world. But we do, we do try to subside overconfidence in even fiat collateralized stable coins just because there have been use cases in the past in which, you know, they've been under collateralized, right? And, and effectively they were lying. And so they have to understand that where you think that there's more stability in some connection to, you know, the, the, the old, you know, traditional world, right? With fiat currencies, you, 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 you know, put trust in humans more and, and, and that's not necessarily a, a pro. Um, just as full confidence, I think, in, you know, protocols and everything, you know, being completely transparent isn't necessarily at the place that it needs to be uh, for that to necessarily be a pro either. And so just trying to create balance in their understanding as to what the pros and cons are when they make these decisions. That's great. Well, look, maybe maybe finally, let's turn to regulation, right? Uh, and so the, the current global regulatory framework, how does the current system affect Emoja's ability to operate? I think the first thing is, is obviously we have to make sure that we're backwards compatible with existing, you know, fintech expectations in the different localities that we operate in. Um, of course, you know, our partners and Flutterwave and, and Visa and, and, and others make this a lot easier than it would be to acquire all the compliance assets, so licenses and certifications that you would need just to, you know, operate as one that, you know, sends and receives money more generally um, through those partners. So that certainly helps. Um, but of course, there's always ambiguity that you have to deal with. So beyond getting your money service business registration or making sure that you're not a money you know, transmitter in the American context, and then having you know, everything that you need uh, abroad, um, you also just have to kind of prepare to have an AML compliance, a KYC compliance policy that is constantly being updated uh, based off of really just sentiment at this point, right? Because no real laws exist. And so, you know, that sentiment is shaped by um, global events like the collapse of UST, for example, or, or worsening crypto winters, right? That makes you a lot more conservative than the policies that you create or, you know, any uh, news of money laundering using Bitcoin, for example, in a particular region, that's going to make you change your policies, you know, pretty greatly. Um, I think the good thing that is, is that we monitor all of our transactions, you know, um, in, in the nature that that's what fintechs currently do in the traditional world. 
And so we, we try to, you know, provide us as much coverage as possible. And this includes, you know, even things that might not be policy related, like having cybersecurity insurance in addition to your journal, general insurance, in addition to your product insurance, making sure that, you know, you're using an institutional custodian because we only use custodial wallets because the type of wallets we have are typically for people who can't, you know, save their private keys or even really understand what that is. I think those extra efforts also help us a lot as well. So, so if you could wave a wand and um, create any kind of perfect regulatory legislative world, kind of what would you like to see? What would that look like? How would that enable the success of what you're building and Umuja's trying to trying to facilitate? What would that framework look like, Robbie? No, I, I, absolutely. This is a, a really great question because having gone through the process of being backwards compatible with existing fintech regulations, you start to realize why particularly underrepresented communities don't build their own fintechs and their own financial infrastructure. And that's because of really two things. It's, it's, it's incredibly convoluted, the process um, and disjointed. So, you know, it, there's not like a list of all the things that you need in a single place. You, you might know that you need to get money service business registered and not know that you're a money transmitter and then realize that you have to do that 50 times. But then also, it's, I mean, it's incredibly expensive. You know, the liquidity required to support any financial system, especially anyone that you hope to be well adopted, you know, is, is at least right now greatly reliant on um, venture capital or on corporate debt. And that might not be accessible to an individual who truly understands the nature of finance, you know, within their community. And so I say that to say that if I had a magic wand, I would want regulations that provide standardized processes in terms of registering um, protocols or cryptocurrencies that exist on them, you know, one um, that are inexpensive, you know, um, that anyone can access and, and, and participate in. Because I would imagine some form of that registration would be required um, in the context of consumer protection. And then, you know, any of the merits, you know, that, you know, differentiate an accepted application versus one that isn't, you know, should be reasonable, right? It it shouldn't be an SOC2, you know, level cost associated with making sure that your smart contracts are audited or making sure that it's safe enough to use you know, there should be some base things that, you know, uh, people can follow if they're due diligent enough rather than if they have enough capital. And I think that's going to be really, really important, you know, to leave that door open with a, a few restrictions, just because we, we haven't even seen, seen the beginnings of what protocols can do uh, as far as financial inclusion. Right now, you know, as great as, you know, the Aves and compounds are, like, you know, massive multi-billion dollar lending protocols, they are not pragmatic enough to be used in emerging markets. They're, they're just not. They require too much collateral. This whole concept of yield farming, you know, more generally, I think is a bit corrosive, you know, to the ecosystem, even though, you know, those two aren't, you know, as uh, guilty of, of, of doing that as maybe others now. And I think that combination needs to be succeeded by a new generation of protocols that are I ideally developed by some of the community members that are affected by this the most so that we find, you know, financial systems that actually work commercially rather than, you know, exist to enrich somebody who's, you know, more on the speculative side. Well, on that note, Robbie, look, I I really appreciate you joining me in this conversation. I think kudos to you for starting Emoja. You've shared, I think, some compelling use cases for crypto and blockchain and 
and the company that you founded is is trying to you know bring some goodness to the global south here. Really enjoyed the discussion and and wish you and Emuja much much success. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, and you to you as well. Julian's interview with Robbie struck a nerve for me. Just last month, I had the honor of testifying before our nation's representatives about crypto, where one of my points was that there was a dire need to rethink the public conversation on financial inclusion and digital assets. I argued that focusing on crypto or digital assets as an investment diverts attention from what is likely the far more relevant question, at least from the standpoint of financial inclusion. Namely, whether there are parts of the ecosystem's technology stack that can be leveraged to open opportunities for the underserved. And I think Umoja really is a case in point. By focusing on the technology stack enabled by crypto, as opposed to on the narratives about getting rich overnight, Robbie is highlighting just how transformative the technology can be in the right hands. But even then, it will take some doing, not only in terms of getting capital to the people that understand local communities and economies, but also from the regulatory community and an understanding from it that where rules aren't devised wisely, they could end up hurting the very people they're designed to protect by choking off the very diversity of perspective and brain power needed to solve real-world problems. It's something too often overlooked, but something that will be essential if the industry and our regulatory community are ultimately to reflect the best of our collective values. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.